of his word. Now, there, there's so much here that we're not going to have time to, to touch on everything, but what we're going to try and do this morning is, is to get a, a framework, a big picture of what's going on, and then to look at two things that the disciples did to see what God is saying to us in this hinge point in history. So look with me at verse 1. In my former book, so that's, the former book is the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, if you take notes, there is a word to highlight, began. Because already Luke is teeing up for us that the story isn't over, that the cross wasn't the end, that the tomb wasn't the end, that there is more to come, that Jesus' ministry continues. And I'll try and not get too excited this early on in the sermon, but, but isn't this great news? That this Jesus that we come to worship isn't just some long gone historical figure, some teacher that we look at in the past. He isn't finished with us. So many people think of the gospel like you're getting a, a second chance. Like Jesus just came and, and reset the scales in your life. And when you think about it, that is a terrifying concept. How long do you think it takes each of us in every single morning to reset those scales to tilt towards destruction? If you think like that, it must be a crushing weight to bear. That's not the easy and light yoke that Jesus talked about. Jesus has not just given you countless second chances to, to try and measure up, dooming you to constant failure every morning. He has declared that you are his that you're forgiven, that you're loved, that you can stand before the God of the universe clothed in Jesus' righteousness. If you aren't a Christian here this morning, if you're looking on at home and you're wondering what all of this is about, this is what Luke wrote about in his first book, that like all of us, you've broken God's law, rebelled against the king and deserve punishment. But that instead of that, God offers you peace he took our sins upon himself and not only wiped our slate clean, but adopted us into his family. This is the gospel that, that God has given us sinners grace and mercy and a relationship with him. Luke wants to remind us of this right at the start so that we fix our eyes upon Jesus and just what he is, do is doing and what he has done. So friends, if, if you aren't a Christian, I just want to say you need Jesus. You need his love and forgiveness. And brothers and sisters who, of you here who are Christian, we can't just skip over this gospel like it's a starting point and something to forget. Luke calls us to remember it, to hold fast to it, because it is this same Jesus that lives within us and calls us to obedience. That word began shows us that Jesus didn't just make everything okay and then leave. Verse 2 there says, until a day he was taken up. Now, that doesn't mean that that that's when Jesus' role ended. It's just what, when Luke's gospel finished. Jesus began his earthly ministry through his coming as a man. And although that part is done because he's not walking about the earth anymore, that doesn't mean that he isn't active today. Jump to verse 11 there. This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven, this same Jesus, the Messiah, the God-man who ministered here on earth is now taken up into heaven. And as we read about in the book of Hebrews, he is our great high priest interceding before us, before the throne, for us, before the throne, and pouring out his spirit on the church. So this same Jesus who is active on earth is active in heaven. Now that might just seem like theology speak to a lot of us. 
But the issue is that so many of us live our lives as if Jesus came a couple of thousand years ago and has just left us to it. That his life, his, his work is done and now we got, we've got to get on with things. We're obviously very grateful for the forgiveness of sins and, and we're really looking forward to that eternal life part of the end. But, but how relevant is, that, is Jesus for us now and today when we're living? Sure, we can come to church on Sunday and, and we like some of the things there, but, but practically speaking, we can be a little like teenagers who, whose parents have left them alone in the house for a week. We know that we'll be back, so we need to tidy up eventually. But for now, we're the kings. Just seeing a couple of teenagers nodding along there. The point in that was just to remind you, your parents will be home. A faith that sees Jesus as some distant, irrelevant presence that sort of sets things moving and then just left. Or a faith that places him in some subordinate role that just helps us fulfill our desires is a stunted, misshapen, and pitiful thing. Like a dead tree starved of water. We can tell what it is, but, but there's no life to it, no joy, no purpose. That's not the sort of faith that we want for you. The, these verses, the ascension, show us that, that when we say that Jesus is king, we don't mean that he left some commands for us to follow in his absence. We really mean that right now, Jesus is king. He sits on the throne and commands us to act. When we say that Jesus is our priest, we don't mean that he's made a way and that it's done with and we can just passively walk through that. We really mean that, that he is right now bringing us and bringing people to God. When we say that Jesus is our prophet, we don't mean that he has delivered a few sermons and we try to understand what he meant by them. We really mean that the Bible is living and active, that he is speaking to us through it today. How many of you want to hear the voice of God? Open the Bible. This is why our songs come from the scriptures, our prayers paraphrase the scriptures, why we read the scriptures, why we have them explained. Because Jesus is speaking to you today. Jesus is our heavenly prophet, our heavenly priest, our heavenly king. But just because he is in heaven doesn't mean that he is distant or removed. If anything, it means that he is more present, more active as he works by his spirit in our hearts and through the church that he has given us. So this, hopefully you've got now, is the big picture, the superstructure of what's going on in the verse. Christ continues his ministry every bit as real as when he walked the earth, but he does so now from the throne of heaven. Luke is trying to get us to see that he is still speaking as prophet, still drawing us close as priest, still commanding us as king, but he does so from heaven. And he does so in a way that is pressing and relevant and urgent for our lives. So with that in mind, we're gonna look at some of the detail now. So what we got coming through these verses is a little pattern that gives us a contrast between what Jesus is doing and thinking and how the disciples understand what he's doing. So it starts off with Jesus revealing something and then the disciples react to that and then they're corrected. And I'm calling this point that the, the disciples look down. So look at verse five. Jesus says that they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days, which is part of Christ's exaltation, part of his heavenly ministry. And so they react to Jesus by saying, but Jesus comes and saying, this is what I'm gonna do by asking in verse six, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, hopefully when you read that, you, 
you might get a bit of a whiplash there. Jesus is telling you about spiritual realities and they snap to earthly ones. And I can't be too harsh on them because they've been brought up believing that the Messiah was going to restore Israel as a great nation and defeat the Romans in battle. They were expecting a great war leader who would sit as an earthly king in Jerusalem. That is the big ending that they've been expecting. That is the final scene. And everything before just leads up to that. So now when they see see Christ exalted, raised from the dead, and promising God's spirit to be poured out upon them, they naturally assume that 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 is sort of a means to the other end. That the spirit coming is something that is going to allow them to retake the land like like a good tool. Like the spirit wasn't the gift in itself, in himself. Can you imagine a parent coming home after being away for, for ages and bursting through the door, arms outstretched, ready to see their children, for the kid to say, what did you bring me? No, 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 he, he is the present. He is the thing to be excited about. Not what he can do, but, but who he is. The disciples miss this because they are looking down. They are so transfixed upon earthly matters that the glory of what they've just been told about sort of passes them by. God is coming. Oh, great, he'll fix our government. Well, yes, but, but who cares? God is coming. God is the thing to be excited about. Yes, the things that he will do are going to be great and we can rejoice over them as well. But they're all secondary to who God is. Some of you will know this, but before I became Christian, I was the angriest man in Ireland. Now, when Jesus called me, that, that anger really left me and I'm so grateful that happened. But But being free of that anger is not the focal point of my faith. It's God. It's knowing God. It's being united to Christ. That alone and all the other benefits are great. But we have to understand that the gift of God himself is what we can really rejoice in. We might say that an alcoholic, we might see an alcoholic, sorry, and and say that they really need Jesus. And that is true. But their prize is not getting dry. It's drinking from the living water that Jesus offers. When we forget this, we end up getting caught looking down, letting earthly matters become the focus of our faith. Think about the church or about God in terms of what they can do for our societies or our communities. We really want a better life here and now, and we think that the only hope for society is if we make everyone really moral. So Sunday school and Sundays is for making good little boys and girls so that we can go and transform the world. Now, we dress it up in in, in other words, but the heart of it is that we are looking down at our own situation. It makes God a means to an end, an end that we have determined to be the best. And what does Jesus say to this thinking? Look at verse seven. It is not for you to know So underline that if you're taking notes. It's not your job. It's not your concern. Don't you see? Jesus is king. He hasn't stopped being king. He rules from heaven and it is his kingdom that is coming. His rule, his reign, his job to transform the world. And he will do it. He says to the disciples, don't look at that. Don't focus upon that. See what you're being given here. You're going to be my witnesses, my ambassadors to the ends of the earth. You're going to herald the kingdom because you're going to be a part of it. You're going to get God. Hold on to that as the most important thing. 
Jesus is saying, don't look down. Or at least, don't get so focused upon the things of this world that you miss the glory of the heavens. Don't think of this stuff around us here as ultimate. There is something far better than all of this. And he is the one that we should rejoice in. We could say more, but we're going to need to keep moving. Look with me to to verse 9. This is the start of that little pattern again. Something about Jesus is revealed as he ascends into the heavens. Verse 10 has the disciples reacting. And then in verse 11, we have the correction. But I just think that verse 9 is an incredibly understated verse, isn't it? He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. It might be kind of easier for us just to think of him as just sort of disappearing. But what we read is that he was taken up bodily into heaven. So what this is, this is his coronation as he is lifted up into the throne room. This is the culmination of his exaltation, the moment where he applies all that he has done on the cross and through the resurrection to us, where he goes to speak your name before God the Father and say, they are mine. Where he sends the Spirit to grab our hearts, to fill us and unite us to him. This is the moment when all we've read about in the previous book, when all we've spoken about in the gospel is applied to us. This is the joyous and glorious culmination of the passion. And as you can imagine, the disciples gaze upwards. Wouldn't you? How could we not? How could we not want to capture the final glimpses of our Lord as he goes up? How could we not want to see what is behind that cloud, knowing what is about to happen? That your name is about to be read out before the God of the universe, and he is going to claim you as his child. Who wouldn't want to see that? And yet when we read on in verse 11, there is this scene where the angels arrive, they're the men dressed in white, and arrive and rebuke the disciples. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? Now I can imagine the disciples there straining on their tiptoes, willing themselves to go up with Christ and thinking, of course I'm looking up. I've learned my lesson. I'm not looking down. I'm not obsessed with the world down here. I want what is up there. I'm never taking my eyes off that spot which the angels might reply, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. He's coming back, back here, back to this world. And so rocking back on their heels again, realization seeps in. This isn't the end either. They aren't about to float away. This world matters. The king is coming back. And the command of verse 4 comes back into their minds. Stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. They have a task. The first pattern, the correction seems obvious. Don't look down. But But with this one, don't gaze upwards. That seems like the right thing to do. What Luke is trying to do here, he actually uses imagery to repeat the point of Jesus' words from before. That this is good, but it's just not for you. Look at verse 9 again and see what he has take, that, that when he is taken up, a cloud comes and covers him. So Jews at the time would have really picked up on this imagery because so often in the Old Testament, God is spoken about as being shrouded in cloud. This glory is just too great for us, so a cloud obscures it from direct view. Like, like on Mount Sinai when, when God's presence rests on the top and then a cloud comes and covers it from view. 
So although it's covered for them, although God has, has pulled the curtain across, they gaze intensely to the detriment of all else around them. So what is being said is that although it's great news for us, what's happening over there, well, it's going to directly affect us. It's not our job to be there. It's, it's not our place. We aren't the ones who are going to speak from the throne. That's Jesus' place. That's his work. Just like we aren't going to take his job as a king, we aren't to take his job as, as prophet or priest either. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, have you ever heard of some revival or some really amazing thing that, that God did and think, wow, how did that happen? And then the next step comes, well, can't we just do that again? Because when we followed that program, revival broke out. When we did certain things, then God reacted in a certain way. So if we just prayed like they prayed, if we worshiped like, like, like they worshiped, then God will have to do what he, for us what he did for them. And pretty soon we have this really subtle thought that, that we can reverse engineer the moving of the Spirit. We declare that we have the words of life and that we can, by our own might and intelligence and faith, bring people to the throne room. We can control God, become the mediator and act as priest that people need to bring the presence of God down to them. How many conferences have you been to where the celebrity pastor with the great faith is brought along to make sure that God shows up at the right time? Or how many times have you heard it implied that, that what we do on this earth doesn't really matter as long as we get the stuff on Sunday right? This thought can take lots of different forms and we've all fallen from it at one time or another. That's so tempting because the instructions that we have been given seem so simple. And we want something more, something deeper, something different. We want to commoditize God so that we can experience him as we want to on our own terms, bottling him up and, and letting him only affect certain parts of our lives, sprinkle it on our morals so that we don't steal but careful not to be put too much so that it might affect our bank balances. A dab here for social responsibility, but not so much that people might think that we are fanatics. It's all too easy to try and separate our lives and close off heaven from earth. But the angel's rem reminder should bring the words of Jesus back to us. We are under orders. We aren't the king. We aren't the priest. We aren't the prophet. We have given, been given a role, a glorious role, a role that we really think about, takes off the crushing pressure of performance and allows us to rejoice in God. But a role that brings responsibilities and purpose and doesn't allow for a Sunday morning only kind of faith. In the next few months, we're going to be talking about what that looks like. So although this is a really deep theological concept, it is also one of the most practical and pressing things for us to grasp in our daily lives. It tells us how to live, about where to focus our attention so we don't get caught up being fixated on earthly things or removing ourselves from the world entirely. Neither looking up nor looking down, but looking forward to Christ's return. So I want to just spend just a couple of minutes now making sure that we leave here knowing how this matters to you tomorrow in your work or in your relationships or how you engage with the world. So firstly, what does it mean for Jesus to be our heavenly prophet? Well, it means that we take direction from Jesus and not from the culture around us. If Jesus is our prophet in heaven, then the words he speaks to us tell us God's will for us today. This book that we study and we read 
It's his word. It's living and active. How well do you know it? How often do you run to it? How much of it do you filter through cultural lenses and simply discard? The difference would, what, what difference would it make if you heard these words for what they truly are? A pronouncement from the throne above. What difference would it make if we woke up and realized that these words are true? Bible reading is such a fundamental means of grace. So whether you read or listen, get into your Bible. Hear God's words as they echo across eternity. As you go out into your life, go with them knowing truth. If Jesus is our heavenly priest, then we can know that even when we forget to pray, Jesus is praying for us. We can know that our faith isn't determined by how good we are and whether our sacrifice is enough because we can look at him and see that he is good enough and he is ministering to us, covering our sin. Seeing Jesus as our heavenly priest means that we can be sure of being with God. And even beyond our, our own personal devotion, it affects how we think about evangelism on our front lines. We might think that, that we can bring people to God if we are just really, really nice to them. But again, Jesus says, this is not for you. Jesus is the priest. He has made a way and he is the one who's going to bring people to him. Yes, we have a duty to preach the gospel and be ambassadors for Christ and in all places and as often as we can. And yes, we should love our neighbor. But the responsibility for their souls is not on our shoulders. If someone rejects the message, it's not because you're bad at evangelism. If someone accepts it, it's not because you made a really good presentation. It's because Jesus, before the throne of God above, spoke their name. Saying something about Jesus can be scary or uncomfortable, but it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be imaginative or groundbreaking event that, that we make it into so often. You don't know what effect just saying, can I pray for you, is going to have to a work colleague who's going through things. You don't know what might happen simply as if you give a reason for the hope that you have when you're, when you're having coffee with people and, and talking about your difficulties. Yes, be an ambassador, preach the gospel, say something about Jesus. That's your job. But trust Jesus to do his. He will bring the growth. Seeing Jesus as priest is the difference between joyous service and crushing legalism. So as we go on in the future sermons to talk about the frontline stuff, remember Jesus is priest. Finally, what does it mean for Jesus to be our heavenly king? Well, at its heart, it means that you aren't the king. He is. Some people will want to tell you that, that Christ is still on the cross or that he's still in the tomb or that he's simply gone away. Because what that means is that, that they can sit on the throne. They can determine what they do, how they are to live. And endless sins can be excused that way. Being hard-hearted or harsh with people, justified because I determined that they deserve it. Indulging in drinks or drugs or porn or something, justified because I determine that I deserve it. What I do with my money, my time, everything we do can so easily become, can just become an extension of our own judgment coming from our own thrones. But seeing Christ as king, that means obedience to his way. 
Obedience looks like a slow walk in the same direction. It looks like being a good husband or a good wife, teaching your kids about God, attending church, practicing the means of grace in Bible study and in prayer. It means allowing what we talk about here to affect every aspect of our lives and bring it all under the reign of Christ. It's not about legalistically living some set of rules. It's about looking at everything that you do and thinking, would this please the king? Not would it please me if I were king, but does this line up with what God has revealed? So what does the ascension mean for us? What are we to do when thinking about the heavenly ministry of Jesus? We are to listen to his words as our heavenly prophet who speaks to us today through his word. We are to defer to him as our heavenly priest and say, yet not I, but through Christ in me, as we realize that he is the one who brings people to him and not us. We are to bow down before him and crown him with many crowns as our heavenly king. The church's ministry, all that we do is founded upon the accomplishments of Christ. And as we go forward, we have to remember what our job is and what it isn't. And what Jesus has said that he is doing right now. We don't look down. We don't look up. We look forward to the day when Christ comes again. And we pray that he finds us here to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. In a minute, we're going to sing a couple of songs to, to give us that space to respond to all that God is. But, but maybe today you're, you're sitting here and you're thinking that God has acted like a prophet and, and used something to speak to you. Maybe he has acted like a priest and, and you feel like he's bringing you close to God. Maybe you're seeing him as a king for the first time in your life. I pray that you can rejoice in his heavenly ministry. I pray that you don't just throw it off and leave here as if nothing has happened. I pray that something said today lifts your hearts and makes you want to praise our great God, to call him Lord and to overflow with gladness at his grace. So if that's you, if, if you see Jesus in heaven, active today in your life, stand with me as we sing to Christ who continues to minister to us today. So let's stand and sing. We're going to sing two songs, yet not I, but through Christ in me, and then crown him with many crowns.